a parent is constantly doing wellness checks on their kids, if you will. What are you doing? How are you doing? Who are you hanging around with? What are you watching? You're constantly doing that. And then they come to them in a preventative way and they may say something like this, hey, you're young right now, but when you're older, there are gonna be people who come into your life that will appear to be nice and will appear to be your friends, but in the end, they do not have your best interest in mind and they will lead you away from God if you're not careful. And then maybe you're a parent and you're in that right now and you see the influence of your children and so you come to them and you say, hey, this person is not good for you. I know that they seem nice. I know that they seem to get you, but in the end, they don't love you properly and they will lead you astray. They're leading you astray right now. If you were to look at the book of Proverbs, you would see that a good section of the book of Proverbs is actually done in the form of a father speaking to his child. My son, if sinners entice you, don't consent. My son, stay away from these kind of people. Don't go even near them. It's that preventative care that the father is providing. So this is what Tim and my responsibilities as elders are towards you. We are to watch over your souls. We are not to fall asleep on the job. And the first way that we do that is by guarding the teaching that goes on in this church. We guard the teaching locally here in this church and where we can influence it globally, we do that, but we guard the teaching that is done here. We mentioned last week that a whole lot of stuff is done in the name of Jesus that is not even close to being of Jesus. And we need to be very, very careful Now, I know that some, maybe even in this church, maybe listening right now, you might look at how we constantly talk about teaching and studying the Bible and may may think that we put too much emphasis on on teaching. You guys are so theologically exalted. You're making sure that every theological I is dotted and every theological T is crossed. And I think you're too concerned with that. After all, aren't we to just love Jesus and to help others? To which I would say, yes, we are to love Jesus. But we need to make sure that we are actually loving the real Jesus. Okay? Because let me give you one example. The Mormons talk about loving Jesus. They talk about Jesus as their Lord and Savior. But if you look into their theology, you will see that their idea of Jesus is vastly different than our idea of Jesus. One example is that they see Jesus and Satan as brothers, spiritual brothers. One was a good, one turned to the good side, one turned to the bad side. That is not the real Jesus, and that Jesus cannot save. And so we need to make sure that we understand who the real Jesus is. In John chapter 4, Jesus talking to the woman at the well, he says that true worshipers will worship in spirit and what? Truth, truth. You need to know exactly who this God is that you're worshiping him because as your view of him starts to veer off into falsehood, so does your worship of him veer off into false worship. 
And I just want to say this quickly. To a certain extent, we're all guilty of having misunderstandings of God. And the reason for that is because the finite, which is us, especially fallen finite, can never fully comprehend the infinite. And so we're all going to have those, uh, those misunderstandings, but we must, therefore, knowing that, that we're falling finite beings, we must be diligent to study our Bibles to ensure that we're thinking properly about who God is and what he has done for us. We need to make sure that we're doing that. Accuracy is essential. Accuracy, precision is essential. We get this, I hope right? A, a, an engineer needs to be precise in her calculations or buildings fall and people die, right? You want someone who is making the proper calculations because we've all seen those stories that they didn't take this into consideration and now 200 people are dead because this building fell. You want accuracy there. A carpenter a carpenter is careful to make sure that his tools are in alignment, his saws are in alignment, because he wants perfectly cut 90-degree angles or 45-degree angles. Trust me, I know. I've done some carpentry, and I've gotten those jacked-up angles. And when you put them together, they don't go together. And it's just noticeable to everyone. Ooh, that looks bad. Well, let's think about a neurosurgeon, right? Do you want accuracy in a neurosurgeon? Absolutely, right? Because if they're not accurate, if they're not precise, if they're, not, if they're just guessing, you don't want that because it could cause brain damage or paralysis or even death as well. You want precision. I don't know if you've seen TV. AT&T's got this series of commercials out um, called Just Good Enough or uh, Just Okay. I was watching this one this past week and this... Uh, customer walks into a mechanic's garage, and he asks the question, he says, are you guys good with brakes? And the mechanic looks at him and says, we're okay. And the man, like, just okay? And the man's like, well, we have a, a saying here that if the brakes don't stop you, something else will. And then the announcer comes on and says, just okay is not okay. And I would say when it comes to theological matters, just okay is not okay. We are striving for precision. We need to make sure that what we believe about God, ourselves, and what God requires us, of us is exactly what, who God is, who we are, and what God requires of us. One more illustration. Uh, think about a, I was thinking about someone who is laying a tile floor or a hardwood floor. They need to spend a significant amount of time making sure that that center line is perfect. Because if they don't, the first couple tiles or, or floorboards will look good, but when you get to the back of the room, you're going to be like, oh my goodness, look how far it's deviated from where it should have been. And the same is true with us spiritually. And this is Paul's whole point. This is why out of all the issues that Paul could have dealt with, he deals with this one of false teaching first. If you don't use precision here, then the church veers off and ultimately leads people into spiritual death. So we need to be precise. And this veering off happens to churches all the time, unfortunately. That's why we need to be vigilant. And sometimes it can be quick, 
but usually it is a slow, methodical process that takes place over years and even decades. Because Satan is clever. He doesn't want to scare people. He wants to infiltrate their teaching, and then he wants to make sure that people continue to go to that church because I am having a great influence in here, and I can teach people falsely, and I love it, and they don't even realize it. And so he is very clever in doing this. So my point with this long introduction is to remind you that theological precision is essential. And the things that we will read and look at in this letter need to be taken home and studied and understood and applied to your lives so that you can properly worship God and you can properly love others. So let's finally get into the text this morning. We'll start in verse 3. Here Paul urges Timothy to remain in Ephesus so that he could give commands to certain persons not to teach different doctrines. Certain persons, let's focus in on that first. Not sure exactly who these people are. They appear to be leaders or influential people in the church. They could have even been elders, which may explain why later on in the letter, Paul goes into the details about what the qualifications of an elder are. These are the men who are professing to be elders. Let me tell you what a true elder, the characters that a true elder should exhibit. But regardless, Paul is saying these people need to be stopped right now. They were teaching things that were not in accord with the official teaching of the apostles who were the official representatives of Jesus. So what were they teaching? We talked about this last week. We're not exactly sure uh, what they were teaching, but Paul does mention in this passage that we have before us today that they were devoting themselves, which means that they were absorbed in or consumed with myths and endless genealogies. And these myths and endless genealogies which were, which were now forming their new system of doctrine. Hey, we're building on this, and we discovered this, and this is kind of cool. Let's consider this. And now they were forming these various doctrines and teachings. If you have your Bibles, turn with me over a few chapters to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Because Paul uses the same word, devoted, uh, here, devoting themselves. And here's what he says. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Now it is very important, people, that we realize the deception of Satan and his demons. They have been at this deception for thousands of years and they have perfected their craft. They know you. They know what you desire, and they know how to lure you in. So we must be very, very careful. We also need to throw out any misconceptions that we have about Satan and his demons. Because usually when you hear about a demon, you think about this little red ugly guy with horns and sharp teeth, and he's got a clearly evil voice, right? That's what we think about when we hear that. So, I mean, we could see that coming from a mile away. The Bible paints a completely different picture of demons. Paul speaking to the false teachers in 1 Corinthians 
to the Corinthian church, uh, writes in 2 Corinthians 11, 13 through 15. Listen to what he says. For such men, talking about false teachers, for such men are false apostles, which is very important because last week we talked about this new movement where all these apostles are rising up um, across uh, the nation and across the world. People claiming to have the authority of God, but God has not given them, them that authority. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. They don't come with evil faces. They come as angels of light. In 2015, a young nine-year-old boy by the name of Tyshawn Lee said goodbye to his grandma, told her that he loved her, uh, grabbed his basketball, and went across to the park. He played basketball for a little bit, and then a man came up to him and befriended him and was uh, hanging out with him and, and talking with him, engaged in conversation with him. Uh, over the course of their conversation, the man convinced this little nine-year-old boy to go to the store with him where he would buy him a snack. And so the, man, the little boy followed him, and then this man shot him execution style in an alley. It was a gang-related retaliation. This man came. He disguised himself as a friend. I am a good person. But he had evil intention in his heart. He was bent on the destruction of that little boy. Satan does the same thing. And like I said, he's been doing it for thousands of years. He is very, very experienced. And his deception is very sophisticated and very, dare I say, effective as well. And I think all of us in here can testify to that, how Satan has lured us in and we have sinned. So my warning to you is don't be fooled. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, don't be ignorant of his devices. Know how he is coming at you and defend against that. These certain persons were consumed with these myths and endless genealogy. A myth, as Paul uses it here, was a tale or fable or, or that which is fabricated by the mind in contrast to that which is reality. It seems that these myths started out as just stories and then somehow morphed into reality as people started to entertain the possibility maybe this is true. Maybe this is right. Once again, this kind of stuff is present today in the church, in the church. Outrageous, outrageous claims of people being transported to heaven and, and viewing these storage, these vast storage areas where there are human eyes and hearts and lungs and legs and all sorts of things which are all unclaimed promises from sick people. And the implication is that, man, Jack could have, Jack could have overcome stage four lung cancer if he would have just claimed this brand new lung from the storage places of heaven. And usually when people hear this, there's that initial suspicion of these stories, but these people continue to peddle this stuff. And they're so nice and they're so sincere and they're so convincing that, that people start to check their reason at the door and they start to think stuff like this. You know, nothing is impossible with God, right? So it is possible that God 
worked in this way. And then we start to take into consideration the Lord works in mysterious ways, right? This is certainly a mysterious way, so maybe this is of God. The old philosopher Plato, using this term myths, here's what, how he uh, used it. He denounced uh, it because it, it, there were certain stories. He, he didn't just denounce it, but he also uh, called it as flat-out false because these stories were intentionally used by people to deceive others. As they started to talk about the immoral activity of the gods, therefore it must be okay for other people as well. Recently, um, one supposed Christian man speaking at a conference with his wife, who is a very influential uh, uh, pastor uh, in a church, I use that term loosely, uh, but they were speaking at a, uh, at a Christian marriage conference where there are hundreds of people who are hungry to hear uh, what is true love, how am I to relate with my wife, what is God's idea of marriage? And this man relaying a story, a personal story, said that, he started to drift away from his wife, his previous wife, and God told him that it was okay for him to divorce her because he didn't love her anymore and he didn't want this man to live a lie. Desperate people trying to hear from God and these words were supposedly from God, but if you mark them up against scripture, they were clearly contrary to scripture. Clearly. But yet used in the name of Jesus. These myths are made up stories about God that become a reality and then are taught in the church. As far as the endless genealogies, once again, there's confusion. Seems to have a, a Jewish element. If you were to read the Old Testament, you would see a lot of these genealogies. So-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. And it seems like what was going on here in Ephesus is that people, these false teachers were claiming some kind of heritage, like my father and his father and his father. I come from a long line of, of, of apostles or teachers. Therefore, I have the authority to speak in the church. Whatever it may have been, Paul labels these things as false and deceptive and says that they promote mere speculations. In other words, these teachers hold out these things to these people and say, consider this. This makes sense, right? This can't be wrong, right? Speculations as used in the New Testament indicates an exchange of words rather than a true search. In other words, you don't have to verify this. I know it sounds kind of outlandish, but you don't have to verify this. You don't have to measure it up against God's standard, the Bible. I'm trustworthy. I care about you. Just take my word for it. You'll be okay. No wonder we are told in the Bible to test the spirits to see if they're actually from God. As a warning, because once again, not everyone who talks about Jesus actually knows Jesus. In addition, these false teachers also brought in the law of Moses. Not sure, once again, how they did that. Um, but it may have been in the form of like the Judaizers who, who said, yes, we are initially saved by faith, but we, are con we continue to be saved by works. And so if you want to be a true Christian, you actually have to obey the law of Moses. You have to be circumcised. You have to obey the dietary restrictions that are in there. If you don't, then you're proving that you're really not a Christian. And Paul came along to them and said, no, 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 no. You are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. You could never even imagine doing enough good works to earn God's favor. 
Paul might have been talking about that here. And that might have been what Timothy was dealing with. But regardless, these teachings were a threat to the true gospel. And these speculations had led the false teachers away. And now these false teachers were leading others away. They were deceived. And now they had become the deceivers. They had graduated from the University of Deception and now were tenured professors in the university. And that is why they needed to be stopped. And I will submit to you once again that uh, these speculations are alive and well in the church today. I wish I had time to go uh, through all of them to warn you, uh, to give you specific examples. I'm just going to give you a couple of them, um, and you can look up others. There are Christians uh, in churches who are fascinated with any kind of new thing that's coming down. I remember in the 90s, um, there was this fascination with the fact or, or the belief that God had inserted a secret code into the Old Testament called the Bible Code. And if you could just crack that code, you could, I mean, it would open up so much more that we couldn't see on the surface. And this guy had claimed to crack that code. This was actually taught in the church that I grew up in, which is a Bible-believing solid church. And I'm just thinking something is wrong about this. Still others do what is known as grave-sucking. What is that? What they will do is that they will lay on the graves of departed saints, those who had a powerful ministry. And the thought is that like when someone like Billy Graham died, his influence died with him. His, his power that God had given laid with him. And so now I need to go and lay over his grave and suck that anointing out so that it will fill me and he will continue. That ministry will continue. This actually goes on in so-called Christian churches. This grave sucking. Other Christians have a fascination with angels. Seeing angels. Talking to angels. Being taught by angels. One lady claimed that God told her to go into a prayer chapel. And to cry out, wakey, wakey. So that she could wake up an angel of revival who had been dormant since 1904 so that this angel of revival could actually minister in her hometown. Wakey, wakey. I hope that you understand that I am not seeking to make fun of these people. I am seeking to bring this to your attention because there is a certain allurement with their false teaching or else they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't have a following if there wasn't. And so usually it will go something like this. You'll hear it initially and you'll say, that's kind of crazy, that's weird, that, that can't be true. And then you'll continue to hear it and then you'll start to hear it actually from people that you respected that seem to be solid Christians and so they're starting to talk in this way. And so then they start to question you. Maybe, maybe you're not as close to God as you actually thought you were. And then you start to examine your own life and you're like, well, my life is, my spiritual life is kind of dry. Maybe I do need some supernatural experience. How awesome would it be for an angel to come into my room? How, how awesome would it be for Jesus to stand right in front of me and say, let me show you the right way. Let me show you what you've been missing. And so what they do is they say, I will open myself up to it. And what they don't realize is that they're opening themselves up to the clever deception of demonic spirits who are intent on their destruction.
No story is too outrageous to believe. If it claims to be from Jesus, then it must be from Jesus. Because certainly no one would claim to say something from Jesus that wasn't from Jesus. And that simply is not true. Jesus himself said, many would come in my name and claim to be me. And so I don't even deny that these people have these visions. A lot of them. And I don't deny that they actually believe that they're talking to Jesus. But Jesus said, they will come and they will claim to be me. Or they will come and claim to be coming in my name. But don't go after them. Don't go after them. This is happening to millions upon millions of people who are getting sucked into this. And at the heart of a lot of these false teachers is a desire for wealth, for power, for fame, and for control of people. We see this in cults as they they seek to control people. And we see this, you don't have to look very far to see televangelists who are all about the money, right? Million dollar, multi-million dollar homes, private jets, This one isn't good enough, so we're going to get another one. Houses here, houses there, cars, Armani suits, the best, the finest food, the finest restaurants. It's all about the money. They use this teaching to pad their pockets or to increase their pain all along, pretending to love God and really care for the people. Paul called them out on his day, and he contrasted them and their motives with his pure motives. We see this in verse 5 of 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul says this, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Paul gave his all to preach the gospel of Jesus because he loved Jesus and he loved others as well. It wasn't about Paul and his advancement. It was about the advancement of Jesus Christ. We see his love for Jesus in his letter to the Philippians. In Philippians chapter 3 verse 8, here's what he says. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And later on he says that I may know him. My biggest aim is to know Jesus because I love him. His love for others is seen in his tears as we saw last week in Acts chapter 20 where he gathers the Ephesian elders and he's praying for them with tears and he admonished them with tears and he doesn't want to see them depart. And it's also seen in his words in in Romans chapter 9 verse 1 and 3, 1 through 3 as he's talking about his, un, his fellow unbelieving Jews and his heart to see them come to Christ and to know the truth, this is what he says, listen. He says this, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Do you hear that? I'm a Christian, they're not. If there's some way that I could exchange lives so that they would not perish, I would do it. That's crazy, right? He loved people. It wasn't about him. It was about Jesus and Jesus saving others. Regarding money, it was not about money with, with Paul. 
In Acts chapter 20, verse 33, as he's talking to those Ephesians elders, he reminds them, I coveted no one's silver and no one's gold and no one's clothing. And covet any of it. And in fact, Paul worked as a tent maker, even though he could have made his living from the gospel given to him by God. He used, he worked as a tent maker so as not to be a burden to anyone else. It was not about the money with Paul. However, very often, pastors, those, those huge televangelists, it's all about the money. And Paul talks about that it was about the money back then to the false teachers as well. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, he says this, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And then Paul was not looking for fame either. In Acts chapter 20, verse 22 through 24, as he's talking to the Ephesian elders, once again he says this, And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. And listen what he says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I'm heading for a lot of trouble, a lot of pain, but it doesn't matter because it's not about me. And if you read his letter to the Philippians, he's in jail. He's starting to be forgotten as these new hotshot preachers are coming up and some are preaching from impure motives. And what's Paul's attitude? Hey, I'm, I'm decreasing in a sense, but I don't care. Jesus is being proclaimed. And if I'm forgotten in 10 years, who cares? As long as Jesus is promoted and known and Paul's not known, who cares about that? Paul had his heart cleansed by God. His motives for preaching were pure. Therefore, he could preach with a pure conscience, all because he had a sincere faith in Jesus Christ. And this brings us to Paul's message. We've spent our time talking about the false gospel and these endless speculations. I want to finish by talking about what the true gospel is, reminding you of that. I'm sure we've all heard uh, the, um, uh, the illustration about how a bank teller, a bank teller is constantly handling money and people are constantly trying to pass along fraudulent or counterfeit bills. And so what is the best way that a bank teller can distinguish the true from the false, and they say that the best way is to handle the authentic bills all the time. So that when an inauthentic or a counterfeit bill comes along, they immediately feel it, and they're like, ooh, this doesn't feel right. And then they look at it, and they're like, this does not look right. And they can discard that. The more they handle the real, the more that they can identify the false. And I would submit to you that's exactly how you can detect falsehood in our world today, in the church, is by handling the Word of God very, very regularly, all the time. Reading it, studying it, understanding it, and memorizing it. Paul urged Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, he said this, do your best to, prevent your, to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Rightly handling the word of truth. So what is the true gospel? For a constant reminder, this is what I want to encourage you to do. For a constant reminder of what the true gospel is, I would encourage you to read through Paul's letter to the Romans at least once a month. 
read through it at least once a month because it is a refresher course on what the true gospel is. It is the gospel in, in the clearest presentation. And what we see, if you were to look at that, is you would see that the gospel, which means good news, it literally means good news, always begins with what? The bad news, right? It always begins with the bad news. And I don't think we need to look very far to see that this world is messed up. Now, I know that the world tries to uh, give up, uh, peddle us this, this falsehood that humanity is basically good. There are some bad apples, but humanity is basically good. I think that the constant wars that are going on, the constant murders and rapes and, and, and fraud and all that that goes on, says that mankind is, is not basically good. And then I believe further that if we could actually look into the thoughts and intentions of people, that would clear that issue up completely, right? We would look at someone and say, ooh, that's what he thinks. Ooh, I thought he was good. <laughs> he really isn't. Ooh, that's what she thinks. Ooh, they're not good. Man is not basically good. We do a good job of hiding some things, but in the end, the Bible says that our hearts are deceitful above all and desperately wicked. This is all because we decided to rebel against God. God warned us, and we said, no, we'll do what we want, and the biggest consequence of our rebellion against God was separation from God as the biggest thing that happened. And this is what sin does. Sin separates. It separates us from God, and it separates us from each other. Why are there wars between nations? Because of sin. We are separated from those other nations. Why are there wars in, in, in families and homes? Why is there divorce? Because there's sin, and sin separates people. It tears people apart. How can someone be best friends with someone one day and then their enemy the next day? Because of sin. The good news is that God has provided a way to undo that separation and to reconcile us back to himself. And he did this by sending his son Jesus. Jesus came to live the perfect life that you and I were required to live in order to have access to God. We need to be perfectly righteousness, and none of, us, none of us even come close to that. And so Jesus came down, and he lived the way that we could not live. And then he took all of the punishment due to us on himself. Every sin that we committed and that deserved punishment, Jesus took on himself. He was separated from the Father so that we could be welcomed by the Father. He loved us. So how do you get this forgiveness of your sins and access to God? Well, by simply believing. Believing that God is who he said he is. That he will do what he says he will do. By believing that you are exactly who he says that you are. A sinner in rebellion against him. And by believing that Jesus died for your sins those sins which separated you from God. And when you believe this, this beautiful double transaction takes place where your sinful life that separated you from God is placed on Jesus and he was punished for that. And then his perfect life, which grants access to the Father, fully pleases the Father, is transferred to you. And when the Father looks at you, he says, you are perfect because of my son. You're perfect. And so I would encourage you, if you haven't believed on Jesus in that way, 
do not delay. Come talk to me. Grab me after church. I will drop everything I'm doing to explain this because nothing is more important. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. Help us to heed these warnings. Lord, I pray that we would not become a snobby church that's just constantly looking for faults in other churches. Lord, that's not our intention. But make us vigilant, Lord. Help us to detect error a mile away, Lord, so that we don't get drawn into that. Lord, help the people in this church, Lord. Maybe some have succumbed to error, Lord. Help them to know that there is forgiveness, that that the truth has been presented and that they can embrace that, Lord. Help the enemy not to defeat them and to say, ah, you bought it. Are you really a Christian, Lord? Please, God, don't let that happen in this church, Lord. And I pray, God, that we would love you in spirit and in truth and that we would love others as well. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.